Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucette, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to a new edition of Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette. As we do every week, we have a chat with a, a brand new martial artist from a, a different style, different background, and kind of hear their story and, and uh, how they got involved in the martial arts and, and what they're doing now and, and everything in between. My guest today, very excited about this one. This is a, a gentleman I, I first met in person back in 2005. I was uh, visiting uh, friends and taking a family vacation in California, and I, I popped into his school to have him sign my copy of the journey. Uh, those of you who have been listening to the podcast, of course, you know that book. One of my first guests on the podcast, wonderful guy, Mr. Tom Bleeker, who wrote that book. So, And I uh, had him autograph that. But this gentleman has been a martial artist for many years. He's also a author. He's done numerous instructional videos. And he's even been in a movie playing his instructor. So that was actually kind of cool. We'll, we'll definitely talk about that too. But very excited to, to welcome to the show today, Larry Tatum. How are you doing today, sir? Doing great. Got my cup of coffee and I'm ready to go. Oh, there we go. Cool, cool. <laughs> well, kind of like I do with all my guests, let's just jump into the beginning. Go back to that very first spark. What led to that first interest in martial arts or you know, where did you first see martial arts and, and kind of what sparked that interest? Oh, I, I think, you know, as a kid, I was a, uh, an athlete like my father, his brothers, my uncles. And uh, I did well in gymnastics. I was a rope climber when I was about 14 or 15. And when the, the championships in Pasadena, California, inner school. And, you know, I enjoyed working out. And, uh, but uh, a friend of mine uh, was cutting my hair. I was angry one day because I had to get my hair cut. But I had to do it. And he said, well, I, I teach uh, judo and I teach something called uh, Kenpo. He said, would you like to see it? And I said, yeah. It took my mind off my haircut. And I threw a punch at him and he did a Kenpo technique on him. I said, okay, that's what I want to do. Wow. As a kid, you know, uh, you start taking uh, martial arts as a means to uh, give you a better edge in confrontation. Uh, but back when I started in 65, Christmas of 65, Martial arts, particularly karate or Kimpo karate, was uh, there's a lot of mysticism to it, uh, especially in the United States, North America, South America. A few people actually uh, taught it or did it as a living. There was a less than three schools in the United States, uh, Kimpo or gosh, maybe, yeah, three, that taught it for a living. So it wasn't a vocation at the time. It was more of a, an adventure and a way of learning how to become a fighter. But as a kid, when I first went down to the Ed Parker studio in Pasadena, where I lived, um, I was all inspired by how the black belts carried themselves. These guys were in their 20s and some in their 30s. And I was 15. But it impressed me. It impressed me that these guys were tremendous fighters. They were warriors. But they uh, were educated at the same time. And during those years, I really didn't care about school. And I, did, I, could, I could get an A if I wanted to get it, okay? 
but uh, I only went to school to get ready to go out at night. So it was, my friends called it my office. But uh, after taking my first few lessons, I realized that uh, I was being taught the essence of, of how to learn, uh, critical learning, critical study, uh, concentration, and a greater focus on myself is how important I was. I learned that uh, I was important more than I was, you know, I growing up thinking that I was born for school, but then I learned through my Kimpo studies that school was there for me. Okay. And that's a, you know, you turn, you turn that around and you get a different outlook on life. And uh, primarily that's what did it for me. And I was so infatuated with the idea of being able to defend yourself scientifically. And uh, that's how it got started. Wow. So yeah. think, think about one of those first couple of classes. What are some of the things you just, you know, as far as like you know, technique and physical stuff, what are a couple of things you remember learning? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming the way the class was run back then, quite a bit different than the way martial arts classes are run now. Do, you know, what are some, a couple of things that really stood out from those first one or two classes as far as you know, the technique and the atmosphere and stuff? Well, as a, as a kid, uh, uh, Ed Parker would come on the mats and teach group class and uh, he'd say, all right, get in your horse. And uh, this is your punch, this is your block, this is your kick. And the fact that he was using the word your, he didn't say get in a horse, get in your. It was giving you the idea that all this was for you and it was your horse. And you were a, a structure that Kempo was going to be layered on, okay? And that fascinated me. And that the, the mere fact that my hands or my feet could respond as weapons, but not as just hands and feet was was just uh, amazing to me. For instance, when he taught us a hand sword, he said, I want you to curl your fingers in so that your hand acts like a sword, not like a hand. And I remember that very well, that uh, I was going to embody the idea that, yes, I was going to become a weapon. I was going to forge myself. And that really impressed me, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, that really took over my, my idea of, of the importance to become what you are learning, embody it. So uh, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. I just I keep going. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, when he taught, he taught, um, and and I learned this. He taught in a way that he taught in parables, and parables for a young teenager uh, gets you to look deeper in, inside a, a subject or an idea, a concept, or a principle, and he uh, he got us to focus on that uh, we were a structure that was uh, had the same symmetry of, of life itself and uh, that the body was not a, an island unto itself nor is anything uh, in our three-dimensional world uh, we all we are all a part of the symmetry so the symmetry of Kempo was being uh, layered on me a step at a time because of this I really carried myself differently and you know, I thought differently. I went to school and my grades went up. And uh, because I I looked at the challenge of learning as not a problem, okay, or a boredom or something, but as a, as, a, as a true challenge for myself, that's what I got from my first few lessons. So as an instructor yourself, and as a, obviously, you know, many people come to a martial arts class and they try it out, they stick with a while and they leave. Not everyone goes full circle. Not everyone gets their black belt. What made you stick with it? What made you want to keep going? I mean, and, and was there ever a time where you thought about leaving? You know, was, hey, this is this is too tough. I don't want to do this anymore. 
or were you in hundred no, percent from the start? It was, it was a hundred percent because when I put my first gear on, I was in the dressing room when I put the top on and it felt like I was being reunited with an old friend. Uh, it wasn't foreign to me and it was supposed to be around me. Uh, this then got me to look deeper into, you know, things that weren't happening by accident. Uh, and I was, uh, part of a scheme of life where I had my place. And so, yes, it was a hundred percent. And when I put that E on, it was, uh, I was supposed to be there. It was supposed to be there. This was not, uh, I no longer felt like life was happening to me, but I was going to be able to happen to life. Okay. I wasn't going to be subject to, to the, to everything as young kids are and so forth. And, but really not question. Uh, how life was uh, working for you and some oftentimes against you. So this was important. Those two things came crystal clear to me when I put that gi on. Wow. At what level did you start teaching? And is that something back then? Did everyone help teach class or is that something you wanted to do? Uh, teaching for me, uh, gosh, when I would take one lesson, I'd go home that night. And, uh, my dad would ask me how I was doing and if I was okay, because we were pretty rough those days. They were pretty tough on us. And I said, no, I like it. I can take it. And uh, I said, that's all part of it. And I really relish that part. But the next day I'd go to school and in between classes, we'd go to the bathrooms to smoke. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, I would teach guys in the bathroom what I'd learned at the previous lesson. So I actually had a, a little group going on in the bathroom at 15 years old. Oh. And uh, <laughs> uh and they would look forward to it, but I was so eager to share what I was learning, and uh, I didn't uh, want to hold back on this. So I, you know, I was, the guys came up and said, you know, you're a natural teacher. I said, well, I enjoy sharing. I don't know about teaching. And they said, no, you're a natural teacher. I, I said, how so? And he said, because you like to share. So that's how it started. But I didn't become a teacher because when I got out, back from Vietnam, I got out of the Army, uh, I was, you know, looking for work. I was thinking of working for my dad, who owned a big nursery in Pasadena, California. But I wanted to do something for myself. And I was in a nightclub one night, and a guy came up to me, and he said, I used to be one of your classes in the bathroom. <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, what you ought to do is go down to Ed Parker's studio again. He said, weren't you a, a green belt before you went to Vietnam? I said, yeah, I was. And he said, why don't you uh, go down there? They're hiring right now. And I said, really? He said, yeah, they pay $800 an hour. And this was 1971, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's starting 800 a month. Well, 800 a month. There was a lot of money back then. Yeah. And so I went down there. And there was a huge line of people getting, you know, waiting to get in to take, uh, to join the course to become a teacher. And so I went to the back door because I was an old student anyway. And <laughs> the moment I went through the back door, I was confronted with Ed Parker. And he said, welcome back. And he looked at me and smiled. I said, uh, I want to work. He said, okay. He said, here's a gi. <laughs> he pointed to it. He okay. said, you still have your belt? I said, I can't find it somewhere. At home. He said, well, here's a, a new green belt. And I put that on. He said, there's a student right there. Start teaching. So I went over and started teaching. And I realized that uh, this is what I was supposed to do. Now, you got to understand that was not a vocation yet in America. It was not Americana. I mean, there was Ed Parker and his uh, his schools and some Shotokan schools, one Kung Fu school in uh, L.A. And so, you know, it wasn't uh, really something 
that you could say, okay, I'm going to make a living at this, buy two cars, a house, and raise a family on it. And in fact, uh, so I started, my relatives used to tease me about it. They said, what are you going to do for a living? I said, I'm going to do this. And they said, well, how are you going to make a living? I said, through this. And they said, but it's not work. Okay, that's, they didn't know, you know. And so uh, one morning I was teaching on a Monday morning and I saw all these people going to work in suits and ties. And they were my age, you know, and they'd gotten out of uh, college. I said, God, I, I'm glad I don't have to do that because they're going to be on the freeway for an hour before they get to work, you know, and they're going to work in a cubicle. I said, shit. I said, I don't want to work in a cubicle. I said, that's death to me, a certain death. Mm-hmm. And I looked down and I was in my pajamas, which was my gi, <laughs> and I was barefooted. And I said, son of a gun, you're making a living barefooted <laughs> in America back at this time. So we were on the cutting edge of the new uh, martial art world. And this was uh, exciting. And we had to prove that it could be a vocation for everybody, not just for a few masters in the United States that had opened up schools in the 50s, the 60s. And, but, you know, we uh, envisioned, you know, there would be uh, schools on every corner if America accepted this. And it was not easy at first because you you needed people to uh, sing your song to let others know that, hey, this is more than just fighting. It helped kids. It brought confidence into their into their lives. It helped uh, kids that had uh, autism, kids of autistic. It did this for it. We had a, a, a very famous uh, lady, a doctor, psychiatrist. I can't even think of her name this morning. But anyway, she... Uh, uh, got her on one of her radio shows and she was saying, you know, if I was going to help a kid after I told him what was wrong with him, I'd send him to a martial arts school. Nice. And, and so what it was is that we were the antidote to the problems that a psychologist or a psychiatrist could define in a person. We were one of the antidotes. We were a brand new antidote. And lo and behold, people just started coming to us for that confidence, for that reassurance of life in themselves. And that's how it became Americana. That's great. How do you think your teaching style changed over the years? Thinking back to those bathroom karate lessons in your first time teaching <laughs> teaching for Mr. Parker, how do you think your styles changed over the last you know forty plus uh, years? It, it changed uh, rapidly in that uh, as I got better physically, I wanted my teaching ability to be as masterful as my physical ability, and. This is one of the concerns I have today. I see a lot of guys that, you know, very good physically because there's more talent now than there ever has been around the world because of the accessibility to the martial arts, particularly Kempo. But uh, these guys, you know, they're really great, but they can't, uh, they're teaching, they're masterful. They're not masterful in their teaching, not all of them, but many are not because they never bothered to have that proportion. Every time you got physically better, you should be a better teacher. It should uh, grow proportionally. If you're a, a first degree black belt, you should be a first degree in teaching. And this was something that I was learning myself. I was learning that as I taught, I was teaching myself. Okay. It's like we had a saying, guy come up to say, Mr. Tato, I want a private lesson. I'd say, okay, go teach one. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, in other words, the art will teach you when you teach. Mm-hmm. And this then was something that I realized that uh, they had to be proportioned to physical and ability to convey the knowledge at the same time. 
And at that time, Mr. Parker was creating a terminology encyclopedia of chemical terminology so people could express themselves intelligently uh, through the arts so that when you taught new people, they just didn't think it was just hitting and punching. Okay. And, you know, it's like I said before, my grades went up because uh, there were the science to Kempo is the same science that builds the universe. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, I was learning uh, calculus, trigonometry. I was learning uh, uh, all of the geometric uh, symbols and mathematical equations that made up the art. Okay. Which uh, further uh, fueled my desire to become uh, more aware of math in school, uh, social science, uh, human behavior, and so forth, because it was part of what we were teaching. And so as the years went by, I would uh, see myself doing very well physically. And then a few days later, I, I felt terrible when I was weak. And I couldn't figure that out. And then a week or so later, or a month later, I'd feel good again and say, okay, I'm back to myself. And then I would go back and I would drop down to what I thought was dropping down to where I felt terrible and my emotion was not the same. But what I didn't know at the time is that I was shedding the skin of the old knowledge, of the old physical uh, way of moving because I was, uh, I was leaving the plateau so fast physically that when you leave a plateau, there's a, an in-between where you don't feel good because you have to accept the new physically and you have to, you know, put the old behind you. And this was happening so frequently to me. I finally figured that out. And I also realized that that had happened in your teaching too. Okay. You would go back and say, gosh, is that the way I taught you? And he says, yeah. And I said, well, that's not how I teach now. Okay. And so you evolve, your teaching methods evolve as you get older and you can get more done with less said. One of the key things that I learned, uh, Brian, was that, um, I was watching guys try to change one thing one of the students would be doing wrong, basic. And uh, they would change 10 things to get one thing changed. And then I said, wait a second. I said, no. I said, change one thing that changes 10 things that person is doing. Okay. So that's has been and still is my uh, evolution in the art. I mean, I, I not the same teacher I was six months ago. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So back then, do you know, was there, did you, or do you know of anyone who tried to get martial arts into the public school systems? I know people tried in the eighties and stuff. It was, did anyone even think about trying to do that back then? I mean, you, you obviously mentioned no. yourself how much it helped you. No, it uh, that type of thing, uh, say, you know, was it credible for uh, typical uh, academic mm-hmm. academia? No, that wasn't thought of until in the eighties. People okay. started saying, wait a second. Uh, they would go to colleges and you could teach on the campus, uh, even though you weren't uh, an accredited teacher in academia, you could start teaching on the campus. And that helped because people realized that colleges now are offering self-defense classes. Then people decided to develop into what we call today uh, sports uh, medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the other? Uh, oh, gosh. The sports medicine uh I can't think right now, but anything that was sports related became academic and you could get a degree in being a a, a sports uh, instructor and karate started to seep into that. Uh, It was recognized by the different colleges and institutions in the United States and Canada. It took that threshold didn't uh, 
arrive into England until around the middle 80s to where a person in England would think of martial art training using England and Europe was an accredited course and it had any academia attachment to it. Okay. That, ha- that happened to me. Nice. So thinking back, obviously not step-by-step, step, but what are some things you remember about your black belt test? Obviously that was, I'm guessing, a pretty important day for you and a big accomplishment. What are some of the things you remember that uh, that oh, really stand oh, out about one that? Other, yeah, one other thing, life skills. You, know, you can get a oh. credit course there, teaching okay. life skills. That, you know, that was a big, uh, teaching life skills. You know, I mean, there's different uh, learning institutions that uh, give credit courses on that to health yeah. development and so forth, which we know today. But that didn't exist. That uh, teaching life skills did not exist. That was reserved for uh, psychologists and psychiatrists. And it was almost not talked about. Okay. Uh, but that was another thing that uh, thinking of, that uh, the martial arts taught life skills. If people saw it, they recognized it as such, and that was one of the guiding influences in the academia. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, getting back to your question of what was the what uh, first um, your black belt test. What are, what are some of the memories, some of the things that really stood out from your black belt test? Oh, gosh. It was four and a half hours, wow. one, five, one five minute break, and it was constant motion, very rough. There were uh, 21 black belts on the board, and at that time, they were the highest ranking from the 50s, 60s, and early 70s. Wow. Um, I had gone through a brown belt test, which was four hours. The black belt test was very rough. In my brown belt test, uh, we after the test, uh, Mr. Parker and the instructors would leave the class, and we'd sit on our knees and, and wait while they deliberated over what they just saw and to see if you passed the test. And I was on my knees, and uh, a gentleman named Dave Heavily, one of Parker's highest ranks at the time, came over and whispered in my ear. He said, "We're in deliberation right now, and everybody wants to promote you from green to black belt." He said, "Do you want to do that?" And I said, "Looked at him, said no." I said, I don't. I said, that, that will ruin the, my own journey. He said, yeah, but you move like a black belt. I said, that's true. I said, I knew that. But I told him, I said, you know, I said, I said I'm said i still in a challenge with myself. And I said, I don't want to do it. And so they went back and their partner smiled. He was very happy that I said that. Uh, that was the brown belt test. Wow. Okay. Uh, the, black, the black belt test was was easy for me because it, uh, I, we were all in shape. Sometimes we would fight for an hour to an hour and a half straight with no breaks. In we had no gear. We were pretty well broken. We heard an arm, thumb, about with one hand forward and the other We were all pretty well beat up. Yeah. We were pretty rough on each other. And But we took it and out of respect for each other. We took it. So the test was uh, exciting, but it was um, a point in my life where one of my greatest achievements was to receive that black belt. And, uh, it uh, was a moment of uh, taking a breath, realizing what you had done up to that point, and enjoy that moment. But don't linger there, okay? Don't hang around there too long. Uh, enjoy it for a few weeks and so forth, but get your butt back on the mats and <laughs> go on. So back then, when you first started now, had he started, was it already American Kempo, or was it still? Well, it, it went through transition. When I started, it was called Chinese Kempo. Okay. All right. There was a Hawaiian Kempo. And uh, the Kempo that he brought from Hawaii was a, uh, a combination of the Kempo that was being taught in Hawaii. But uh, Professor Chow, who had taught uh, uh, Parker and the other students at that time, uh, uh, altered it so much that it was a combination of 
looked like Kung Fu, and it looked like Hawaii Kempo, looked like Kosha Kempo, and so forth. But what Parker did in the 50s, he came and uh, he started teaching that, but then he started to get the Kung Fu influence from different Kung Fu teachers, masters. And he added that to Kempo, but he was uh, not satisfied with that. But during the, that time, it was called, he changed it to uh, Chinese Kempo. Okay. Uh, but then later, as he evolved the system with clarity and defined what basics are and so forth, it, uh, it became American Kempo. But prior to his death, he told me, he said, it can't be called American Kempo anymore. He says, it is what it is. It's, uh, it's all concepts and all principles united under one roof of study. Okay. Yeah. So back in 1988, you were approached by Panther Productions uh, to create mm-hmm. a, to create a video series, and that was actually the first time I heard of you. I used to read Black Belt. I started Tong Sudo when I was 10, and I used uh-huh. to go to the local drugstore and buy Black Belt magazine. And I remember, I think when I was in high school, it was the first time I saw your ad in there for your your video series when Kempo strikes. Just kind of talk a little bit about that, and you know, now it was completely their idea. And I mean, were, were you was that another thing where you were right on board and just said, "Yes, I want to do this," or how did that yeah. whole thing come about? I was uh, approached by them to do uh, the first uh, Kempo videos uh, yeah, in, in the world. I, I said, all right. I said, I'll do it. And uh, I did 20, 22, 23. And they had all the forms and all the basics and the sets and so forth. And I was very proud of that work at that time. Uh, they, nobody, they were actually a little early because not everybody had mm-hmm. the VHS machine. What was called a Betamax at that time. Yep. First, it was Betamax and VHS, but they didn't have it. So, you know, and then within months, people started to get the machines, and then suddenly the sales just went through. But I, I didn't do all of the self-defense techniques until '93, when I produced those with my wife Jill on my own, and uh, so. And if you look at the videos from '88. 89 you'll see a different person than you will 93 and you'll see a different person in the videos i did in the 90s i rather in, in the millennia in 2001 2002 they changed and uh, and the dvds i do now and the app i have on on the phone which is all over the world you can see a definite change in the person and i'll tell you one of the things that changed my teaching in my persona is i went to acting class a gentleman named Eric Morris, who was, uh, he was the master of uh, teaching acting. He didn't hold anything back. He would tear a person apart emotionally to get to the real it in the person that we called for in a scene mm-hmm. or a character had to be, had to come out of you. And uh, he saw my videos uh, that I did with Panther and he said, those are very good, very instructive. He said, wow. He said, I'm learning from and so forth. He said, there's something else in, in you that's not on there. So I went two years of intensive acting and so when i went back into the self-defense techniques you'll see a completely different person okay mm-hmm. and uh it's at the time that i did 89 anytime you do something that is educational you're doing it from a, a point of understanding or perspective of understanding at that time okay and since kempo is not it's a very fluid system in that uh, it changes Okay, to fit the situation, you too have to change in your in your approach to teaching and so forth. But the acting really brought a side of me out that uh, I was uh, 
I used to this day. And that gentleman changed changed my life drastically. And and I keep uh, under that same vein I teach today. I'm more open than I ever was, and uh, I get more done. Okay. Well, you mentioned acting, which actually kind of brings me to my next question. Mr. Parker has been, you know, portrayed in a couple different movies, actually by his his son in the very popular movie Dragon the Bruce Lee Story, but in another uh-huh. movie that was more focused on on Elvis Presley called Protecting the King. You actually had the opportunity to play Mr. Parker. Talk a little bit about that. Well, it was an interesting movie because uh, not once in the movie do they, the gentleman who was played uh, Elvis, do they call him. Elvis. That's right. I noticed that when I saw it. That was kind of okay. weird. <laughs> All right. So there were some rights that had to, they had to watch out for. So they uh, called him uh, the king mm-hmm. so forth. And I was playing not Ed Parker as Ed Parker. I was playing a character of myself. Okay. Okay. So the story could be told. And uh, so David Stanley, who produced the movie, who was Elvis's half brother, uh, he had seen me and in Florida at a seminar. And he said, I'm going to do a film about my brother Elvis. And he said, I want you to be one of the stars in, in some way. And I said, all right. I said, whenever you're ready. Well, a couple of years later, he called. He said, I want you to do this part. You're playing Ed Parker. I said, well, I don't, you know, I don't have a mustache. And he said, no. He said, it's not important. He said, the storyline is what's important. And uh, I said, okay, we'll do it. We'll do it. And uh, so when I filmed that scene in Protecting the King, by the way, the movie did very well, particularly in Europe. It did great movie. Yeah. I shot from eight in the morning to about 10 at night just to do that mass attack scene. Wow. And as good as it was, they used the very last scene around 10 o'clock at night. And I was worn <laughs> out. My, <laughs> you know, I'm an artist and I wanted to do my best. Mm-hmm. Um, they should have kept the very first take, but uh, something, uh, something. But anyway, I, it, it wore me out because when you see the mass attack, you know, there's very few real cut-ins. I'm doing all the work and I'm working on six, six or seven guys. I can't remember, but uh, I'm not taking breaks in between. It's, uh, it was a lot of work, but I enjoyed it. Got to meet uh, a lot of actors in it and so forth. The gentleman uh, that played Elvis was the gentleman who played uh, Elvis in Forrest Gump. Oh, and, uh, okay. I didn't realize yeah, that. Nice. Yeah. He, he did a great job. Yeah. He, he did a great job. But it was a lot of fun. I've done a couple of other films and so yeah. forth. I you remember. Know, at, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I read in an interview with Mr. Stanley, <clears throat> I, I believe he said that the main reason he chose you for that is because you moved like Ed Parker, and that's what impressed him. That was the thing. I mean, uh, Ed Parker came up to me and he says, You move just like me. And I said, He said, You look like me. I said, No, I don't. <laughs> He says, he said, when I say look like me, meaning that when you move, you look like me. Right. And he said, you have that. He said, like, you, you were born with certain characteristics in, in Kimple. And uh, what I found out through my teaching, how I moved, I couldn't really explain it to anybody when I first started moving like that. There was really no terminology at that time to explain how I was moving, how I generated my speed, how I generated my power. Bruce Lee tried to explain how he moved it was in his books but it really didn't get into the science of okay that exclamation of, uh, of how you move and so forth you know it had to come through a study of body mechanics okay the mind the nervous system and how the nervous system related to the brain and the interaction between that that i found out later okay 
But in many of the early days of my teaching, I, I couldn't explain how I did it. I could show you, okay? But uh, how it functioned behind the scenes, so to speak, that came along as I evolved in my teaching. That changed as well. I could explain it to you. But Parker had, did the same thing. There were things that he wanted to explain how he did, but back in the 50s and 60s when he moved, I mean, uh, science was not ready for the human body to move that way. They used to call movement, oh, he has a rush of adrenaline, where he went crazy in his action. He was uh, just born with it. Well, I never believed that just because you were born with ability that you couldn't uh, bring that across to somebody else because you could. Right. But it had, but it had, there had to be terminology, okay, an understanding through terminology to bring it across to them. And I think that's, that's fascinating. Oh, definitely. And so that's now, where we are today. Okay. And so now you, you did the video series. You also got into writing and you've written uh, a few books too. Uh-huh. Talk about how, how that came about. Was that another thing that was that, did someone approach you or did you just decide? And if I remember correctly, I, I could be wrong, but I think your first book, Confidence, A Child's First Weapon. Uh, it was 1984. 1984. It was Confidence Child's first was, Oh, okay. That was that. Okay. Yeah. I must have the, a reprint of it then, because one I have says oh, 2003, yeah. so I must have got the reprint. So what led to that first book? Well, I wanted to do it. We were teaching so many children. Okay. Kids were becoming so prevalent in the art, and I was learning about how children are learn and so forth, and I wanted to write a book, and it was the first book on Kimple ever for kids. But I didn't want to write it in such a way that it was childish. So what I did was I paraphrased, if I wrote a descriptive sentence, which was for a reader that was in high school or college, I paraphrased it with the same verbiage, uh, not with the same verbiage, but the different verbiage so that a younger person could understand. And I guess that's one of the reasons the book did so well. And, uh, but when I wrote it, I went under the eye of an English professor named Tony Russell. She, uh, she said, you want to write a book? I said, yeah. I said, but uh, she said, well, I'll, I'll be the hawk that watches you write it. So <laughs> that's how it did. And it, it came about very well. And uh, it taught me, again, okay, uh, to become a better teacher for young people by writing about it. That's how that started. Okay. And I know you've written a few other ones, too. So how many total books have you written? Uh, I've written three books. Okay. Uh, I'm working. I'm working on one. Uh, I finished one a few years ago, which is the Heart and Soul of Kimple, which is uh, we can't keep in. It's done so well. I'm very proud of it. But that's where I get into uh, teaching, and period. I get into how people, uh, what is human nature, and how does human nature revolve around Kimple, and uh, how do you deal with human nature uh, when it comes to your door? And I really get into the heart of how people think and how people learn. That book was, uh, I enjoyed writing. Uh, I enjoyed writing that book. One of the things I teach in the book is that um, don't assume that the student knows what you're talking about, or even if they do, they want to do what you're talking about. Okay. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you uh, there are, are basically 12 tribes of people. And if you keep your door open long enough on the street, uh, five or six days a week, you're going to run into every individual from that tribe. It usually takes about two to three years before you hit all 12 individuals that make up the human race. And uh, once you recognize that that's happening to your school and happening to you, then you can regulate your teaching, coordinate your business appropriately you know, to adjust uh, 
to the human nature that comes through your door. This is very important because you have to learn to speak more than one language when you teach New York. People say, what do you mean one, more than one language? Spanish, uh, French, whatever. no, 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 the human language. And that's the language of understanding. And I had to learn that every the 12 tribes of people that come through the door, they don't speak the same language that you do. They speak the same words, but they have different meanings to an individual. Right. And uh, so I had to learn that. And I realized that when I taught a group class, you have 12 tribes of the human psyche out there, but how can you get them all to do the same thing? And that's what I learned. And I realized that my verbiage had to be adjusted during the class. Okay. Mm-hmm. And my verbiage, what I, the way I taught in class was not way I was going to teach in a private lesson either because then you're you're on a one-to-one basis once I learned how to teach that way I was on the boat to being able to uh, truly evolve to a point where I could say okay my mastery and my physical and my mastery and teacher were both on the same level okay okay and uh, so that's in the book it teaches you how to interact with people it's funny you know you can open the door and you have all the good wishes for the community and you open the door and say, okay, come in, world, I'm ready to teach. And then little by little, they start coming in and you get those that are excited. You get those that are timid and you get those that uh, we have uh, three types of individual that study in school. And that's an iron worker, a watchmaker and a tinker. And I write about that book and that um, an iron worker is a tough guy, a tough woman that comes in and man, they hit hard. They're not afraid of anything. and uh, they want to spend most of their time sparring, okay, or pounding on each other. And then you get the watchmakers, they come in and they know every single technique, how it's supposed to be done, because it was written in such a way, and they can correct anybody in school, okay? And then you have the tinkers. Those are the guys that come in and they just want to be around strength and they want to have a, be around the camaraderie of, a, of the studio. And they really... Don't, you know, delve into it too hard, but they like to learn enough to be a part of what's going on. Well, this is part of the human psyche, and a good school will have all three. You need the iron workers to be the bigger, tough brothers or sisters to inspire the tinkers, okay? Mm-hmm. And they like to rub, the tinkers like to rub elbows with stronger people, and they, they feel a family unification. But then the watchmaker is, is a careful eye on all of you. Okay. <laughs> and he or she will correct you and say, hey, that technique is done this way. Okay. And so forth. They can get a little annoying sometimes, but they have to be there. Once you learn that about teaching, then your school will flourish. Uh, if you speak only one language and that's your language, then you're going to have a school of 30 or 40 people that are like you. Right. Okay. And you come up to me and say, Mr. Tabe, I only have 40 students. What's one? I said, well, what language do you speak? What do you mean one I said, well, you're only teaching people that you like and people that you want to have them move like you or think like you. Oh, no, I don't. Yeah, yeah you do. I said, you, that's what your problem is. Well, what do I do? I said, number one, quit assuming everybody wants to think like you, move like you. I said, let the art tailor to the individual. Once they learn about how to regulate their teaching to the individual that they're confronted with, their school first. And nine out of 10 times, they come back to me six months later. God, I have 60 students now. Now I have 100. <laughs> One guy said, now I have 300 students. And a very famous influence guy, one of my students. And uh, when he first started teaching, and he was, you know, 
new on the block of teaching. He would bring instructors from all over creation to teach and give seminars. But then he was getting conflicting ideas. You bring too many teachers in from different schools of thought, you get conflicting ideas in your school then suffers that because then the students question you and question everything else. And so I told him, I said, cut that out. I, he said, well, I do. I said, Once you're a natural teacher. You love people. Invest in yourself. You are your best investment. Just invest in yourself and evolve your teaching. And man, he took that to heart. And he said, Larry, you got mad at me. And you told me that. I said, no, I was mad for you, not at you. I said, I saw what you're doing, and I knew it was not going to take you where you wanted to go with your school. And I said, quit going around the creation. I said, build the school first. And I said, if you want to add schools later on, I said, add schools. But they will be in line to how you want things done. And now he has over 300 students. I mean, he's just uh, he's done incredible that way. He speaks many languages. That's really great. So let's talk about, you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier, but talk about the app. That's kind of reading about it. That sounds really interesting. So just. Oh gosh, four, four years ago, one of my students, like a keen entrepreneur said, I'd like to do something for it. I said, oh, it's an app. And I said, how hard is it to get the whole system on the app? So people can have it on their phone and have every DVD, every DVD I did. He said, well, we want to get those on the phone. So he tried for a year and he couldn't do it because it was the hoops that you have to jump through to get on the app are it's very difficult because you have to be accepted by Google. You have to be accepted by uh, iPhone. You have to be accepted and, and on and on. Okay. They have to uh, scrutinize it. They have to see uh, what is it that you're putting on there and so forth. Uh, you have to share in, uh, in proceeds, of course. And uh, so it, he could finish it and he tried very hard. So finally, one of my students, from Ireland approached me with, he said, look, he said, Mr. Tatum, he said, I've been with you for so long. He said, I know how to get the app up and running. He said, it's going to take at least a year. So we did, and it took longer than that. And finally, after we jumped through the hoops and you're approved by all of the search uh, engines and Google and uh, Yahoo and everything, and you're accepted by the, the placement, it finally happened. And the entire system I teach from Yellow Belt all the way through is on the app and it's there at your fingertips. And it uh, it just took off like crazy. And uh, so I'm in somebody's back pocket every day. <laughs> like, you know, I'm, I'm at the beach and I don't know it. Okay. One, guy, one la lady said, me and my husband watch you before we go to sleep at night. And I said, oh, shoot, don't do it. <laughs> I suppose when COVID hit, that was a really cool thing to already have in the bag. I mean. Well, when COVID hit, everybody ran to the app and uh, it uh, has serviced the martial art world, not just the temple, but the martial art world tremendously. Uh, and we, what we do, we have to, as the app, uh, or rather as uh, Google, uh, you know, just like you get updates on your computer, mm -hmm. you have to change with the updates on right. the function of the app too. So Very you cool. just go to your app store on your phone and type in Larry Tatum Temple and it'll come right up. Awesome. Every, any, any and every technique, plus a whole bunch of other seminars I did and uh, special classes for those that have the Okay, and it looks like you also have a website for that too. It looks it's a ltkempoapp.com. Yeah. I'll put a link for that for sure with your uh, on the show oh. notes when you launch the podcast. So great, great, that's cool. So someone asks you, and they know nothing about martial arts, and they're wondering what makes your style different from others. What kind of is do you have like a a little brief segment you'd give them to kind of explain the difference between Kempo and something else? 
Well, it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's not new what I'm saying, but Kempo is traditionally untraditional. Kempo has all the concepts and principles of motion into one system, but its approach is to do away with itself. People say, what do you mean by that? I said, well, the, the point of it is once you learn all of the techniques, and there's 151 techniques, including extensions, they're the genetic code of the system where every concept and every principle is interwoven and interrelates to itself. Yellow belt techniques relate to the highest black belt techniques, to the middle brown belt techniques, down purple techniques. But there, and I, I did an article on it. It's in my new book too. Okay. Uh, the genetic code of Kempel. So it has everything that the human body can do in motion. And it also has all the concepts of understanding as well as teaching. Every technique has a, a theme to it so that it has a little scenario that could arise in a street situation or in any life situation. So it's, it, it's the system that teaches, okay, life within the fighting arts. And it teaches your relationship to take what is available in Kempel and tailor it to you as an individual, all right? Now, you may not like every technique, but it's important that you know that it exists so that you can draw a contrast to it to create your own system within yourself. Okay. And that's how it works. So someone approaches you and they're just either for themselves or maybe for the child. They're just wondering, I'm thinking of getting involved in martial arts. I'm thinking of putting my kid in martial arts. What are some tips you give them what to look for in a school, what to look for an instructor, and maybe some things to avoid? Go in and sit in and watch a class. And if there's private lessons, watch private lessons. And let your heart be your barometer to what you feel would be good for your child. Okay? If you feel that what they are teaching is something that your child could learn and the teacher is an honest, teaching an honest lesson and they're wholesome in their approach to teaching and they're not overbearing to the point. They're disciplined and they want your child to be disciplined. That's important, but not to the point to where it's militaristic. If that fits you, then that's a place that you want to start in. If you don't know anything about the different styles, then go to different schools, okay? And uh, educate yourself as a parent what the different styles offer, okay? And then sit in a class, like I said, let your heart be your judge if you're going to continue to stay there. Also, your, the people in your community where their kids go, you want to talk to their parents. Want to talk to the kids if you can and ask them what they're learning there. Does it fit uh, the family uh, experience? And that's very important. You don't want to send your kid off to something that is going to teach a, a religious or a spiritual program past the real benefits of martial art training. You've got to be careful there too because you don't want indoctrination to take hold of your child. Okay. So those, those are the things that you so in your 50 plus years in the martial arts, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on MMA and the UFC and, and kind of that, how, how it's kind of exploded into the martial arts world in the last 25 years? Well, at, at first, when it first came out, it wasn't as uh, technically advanced as it is now, okay, because it was filling itself out to the rules that changed throughout time. Yep. And uh, in the beginning, most people were being taken out by chokeholds because they're uh, their striking methods were not up to par to uh, deal with a guy with ground fighting. And then that changed. Then people started getting knocked out by, by their feet and their hands and elbows and everything else, right? So now it is a, a real 
tremendous co combination of everything within the rules that it's bounded. And uh, it, the way it is today is, is it, it's spectacular. And it has helped the martial art tremendously, without a doubt. I mean, the talent now around the world is just bigger than it ever has been. People are, are doing things physically that people didn't think you could do in the past. Uh, so I credit a lot of that to course. And anyway, it's, you know, the different styles have a different approach to life studies and through physical studies. And it's important that everybody finds their own way through their, the different approach to uh, martial arts. And if a guy can go, wants to go to MMA and, you know, uh, pound somebody into the mat and stand up as a victor, that's great. And, you know, that depends on the people that are obliged to do that with each other. But, you know, oftentimes uh, people say, why didn't you go and do the same type of thing? I said, because I enjoyed, fighting was easy for me. It wasn't hard. It was very easy for me. But I wanted to stand side by side in victory with a student that I didn't beat the girl, but uh, I elevated through teaching. I like that answer. I probably know the answer, but maybe I don't. Maybe I'm wrong. So if you had to pick <laughs> one martial artist that you truly admire, who, who would be at the top of your list? Well, besides Ed Parker. Right. <laughs> that's, I, kind, that's kind of the easy go-to, I guess. So. That's the easy go-to. Yeah. Uh, I, shoot. Oh, that, you know, that's not an easy question because there's so much talent now. Right. So, and maybe it's someone you, you never met or never saw in person. Maybe it's someone you, you've read about or studied about, too. I mean, it doesn't have to be someone you actually knew. Well, I uh, there was, uh, oh, my gosh. Let's see. I would say that there are, it's, it's too hard to say one person. I mean, I like watching all the arts, particularly when it's done artfully, okay? When I watched the, the Olympics mm -hmm. a week ago, you know, I was very disappointed in with the taekwondo matches for the kids, the teenagers. Yep. And, and I found out everybody was. It was sloppy. It was, they'd hold on to each other and who could get the first kick in. And, and it was just a, a, you know, kick and then you kick, you kick. It was very sloppy. I was not impressed because I'd seen it in, in the Olympics before, like everybody else, when it was, ha, had a sense of art to it. it. This time it was very sloppy in that group, in that age group. And I was very disappointed. In it. Yeah, it's changed a lot. You go back and watch when like someone like Herb Perez was doing it back in the yeah. early 90s and compare it to now. And it's, it's different. Yeah. It's completely different. No, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's losing, uh, it's, uh, it's art in many ways. Uh, it'll come back. It'll come back. But uh, I, I enjoy watching good judo, good jiu-jitsu. Uh, like I, if I didn't do Kempo, I would have done judo. Okay. And uh, once a, a good judo man gets a hold of you, you better know what you're doing because uh, <laughs> that is true. It's, it's it's true. Or a good wrestler. Okay. So I don't know of any one person that I watch today. I'll tell you the best fight scene that I that. I saw that impressed me the most as being the most realistic and came from an organic place within the body and mind was in Lonesome Dove when Tommy Lee was protecting his uh, son, who he wouldn't admit was his son, but being picked on by some soldiers and being whipped by uh, one of the soldiers. They were trying to steal his horse, confiscate his horse. Mm -hmm. And Tommy Lee, tremendous actor, rode his horse into another horse to knock, to knock it over, jumped off, and he went after this guy, speaking on his son. If you ever want to see a fight scene that is so real and so organic, that's the best one I've seen. Wow. I have to go back. I probably haven't watched that since I was it, probably in he, high school. <laughs> he takes that guy apart, and uh, 
But you can see in his mind when he fights, and you can see his body as, as he moves, that he's defending his son. And he went beyond acting. He went to the organic level. And that's a level, when I demonstrate, when I move or when I teach, I go organically. I, I quickly leave uh, the surface version of my conscious level. I go into my subconscious. Okay. Uh, and that's uh, where he goes in that fight scene. I will definitely be checking that out again. It's been too long. So, yeah. so in all your years, is there a philosophy that you've learned in martial arts, either one that you heard from Mr. Parker, one that you've come up with yourself, just one or two philosophies that go to the top of your list? I'll tell you what I have found out most recently over the last two years, being up here in Prescott, Arizona, as much as I love the art, embodied it, and have taught and love all the people that I taught, 27,000 students. No, 30, uh, 30, 30 some one thousand students. Wow. And 168,000 teaching hours. Is that at this point now, I realized don't get buried by the very thing that you love. Okay. Mm-hmm. Before I, where I am now, I was underneath the art. Even in my teaching, I was still underneath it. Okay. That it um, was a roof over my head. Okay. Where I am at now, I'm not underneath it. I'm over it. And that's a, that word has different meanings. I'm over it. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm above what I'm teaching. Okay. I'm over the, the part of, of that. All these things have to be done. Okay. And what it is, it's a type of growing up. And I'll say to those that are listening, do not go so deep into the into the rabbit hole of study that you end up burying yourself, okay? Find that point to where you are no longer bound by the art itself, but you are above it, and you come back to the person you were when you first came here, this world. You come back to that spirit, because your spirit will alter and be changed by too much study in any art. And it was like that girl in the Olympics that she said, and the gymnastics, Mm -hmm. she said, I can't go any further. She said, I've lost something. I, it's uh, lost uh, my way in it. And she bowed out gracefully. And she had nothing to prove. Right. Okay. And it's the same with what I do now. Right? Is that I'm just telling the listeners, don't stay under the art. Don't tell yourself that you are bound to it to the point to where you lose yourself. Okay. Remember, this is a tool. It's a God-given tool if you're a teacher. But a tool is not to be worshipped. Okay, the art is not to be worshipped. You are to end up above the art at some point in your career. And when you do, not only will you be the best teacher you can be, but you'll be better for the people that you meet. That's great. I like that a lot. That's a great answer. All right, so just a few fun ones to wrap things up here. You can't pick one that you wrote, but what is a favorite martial arts book? I always thought, uh, uh, what was that Aikido book? They had all the drawings in it, the dynamic sphere. Oh, okay. Yeah, tremendous. In terms of what somebody was going to teach something, that was probably the best uh, book in its in its format. Okay. Okay. And then if you want to get to uh, books on Kempo that Mr. Parker wrote, Infinite Insights, you it's a type of books. Great series. Series that you have to you don't read just once and say, okay, I know you you have to go back in, but uh, those. I enjoy those a lot. 
Okay. Another one. Now this one, you may not have an answer for, not everyone does. I just started adding this question in because a lot of people brought it up, but do you have a favorite martial arts video game? Maybe you don't play video games, who knows, but if you do, and if you have one. No, I don't. Okay. Easy I, question I, then. I, I never got involved in video games. There we and, go. <laughs> uh, I do not put my phone in my hands when I go out to eat. Okay. Or if I go out, I do not sit there with my head bent down looking at that damn phone. That's great. Okay. I enjoy life. I enjoy people. I'm going to talk with them. Even when I'm home, it's very hard to get me to answer the phone. Okay. I am not. I went to the restaurant yesterday and everybody in the restaurant, about 90% were sitting there. Their children and their families were at this big dinner on Sunday dinner and the kids and the father, the mother all had their hand on the phone and one hand on their fork. And I thought, well, what's the, why bother coming out? Why, why do that? No, I just don't do that stuff. Okay. And two final questions. Favorite martial arts TV show? Gosh, well, as a kid, I loved the Green Hornet and nice. Wild Wild West. And let's see, was, uh, Red Sun was one of my favorite movies. Okay. Charles Bronson, because it was real, it wasn't digital. I liked Tom Cruise in The Last Samurai. Oh, that's a great movie. Yes. He, he did a great job in that. I mean, he the, the guy is a, remarkable how he embodied how the samurai would move. I mean, he's an actor. But he's also a very a tremendous athlete. I enjoyed that movie. I still do. Yeah. Okay. So have you watched any of the any of the recent martial arts TV shows? Have you gotten into any of those at all, like you know Cobra Kai or any of those? I, I tried to a little bit. But, okay. You know, uh, just <laughs> not for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Look, my life wasn't is and still is an action adventure movie. Are you kidding? <laughs> right. I don't need action adventure movies. Okay. okay? Uh, everybody lands in a superhero landing. One knee on the ground, one fist on the ground. <laughs> yep. I'm, I'm so tired of seeing that. I could scream. I like good stories. I like good acting. Okay. okay? So as, as a Kempoist, I do have to ask you this. Then. What, what were your thoughts on A Perfect Weapon? I thought it was well done for its time. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it, did, it did a lot of good for the Kempo world. It, um, it was at precisely the right moment, I think, for, for uh, Jeff to, uh, to do that. Okay. And, you know, Jeff came to me as a white belt, but he was a second degree Gojo Yep. And uh, he came to me as a white belt. I trained him for about nine years, almost daily, almost daily. And he just ate Kenpo up and loved it. Yeah, that's actually that's actually the movie that first introduced me to Kenpo. I, I, uh-huh. I knew nothing about it. I mean, I read a little bit about it in Black Belt Magazine, but I knew nothing about it. And seeing that, that's when I actually made the decision that at some point I was going to move to California and, and, and learn the art. And <laughs> well, you see, you know, Kempo through Mr. Parker is, although the, the system on the idea of it is very old, the art in the United States was, is, you know, 50, only 65 years old. Probably. Right. And so, you know, we've had different... Uh, People within the art, like Tom Baker, did a lot of writing in there. He uh, introduced uh, The Journey and so forth, which was another help. Jeff helped in the, when he did that film. Other guys in that, uh, put in their, uh, their efforts to help promulgate this art was uh, is still ongoing. So, the, you know, it's compared to the other arts, it's still young, right. okay, around the world. But now it's because of the app and all my DVDs and so forth. Uh, films I've done, you know, people recognize it for what it is. I mean, it is such a, a popular system now. 
So all these people in the past that have put their efforts into it uh, deserve a lot of credit for it. Agreed. Well, Mr. Tatum, I just want to say thank you. This has been an absolute honor. Like I said, I know I've, I've met you once or twice. I was actually originally thought at the beginning, I said the first time I met you was actually 2005, but I actually met you briefly at the internationals. I believe it was 1995. I was still living in Minnesota and drove with, with a buddy out there. We wanted to just go to the tournament and watch. And that was my, my first experience with a tournament that big. So we actually just drove there to watch. And I, I, I think I just walked up to you and said hi and like shook your hand. That was about it. We didn't really have a conversation. But ah, so that was well, the first time I actually met you. <laughs> and you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's the way things are. The symmetry of life is that you meet somebody and you really don't acknowledge it that much. But there was a reason for that first meeting. Yep. Oh, there is. It's just not, okay, you met somebody and that's the end of it. No, this, there's a reason for it. No, but I, I truly appreciate your time. I, I, I've i loved your stories. It's, it's been great hearing about your, your background and your, your journey through martial arts. Well, thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it too. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.